Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5, or this morning in, in, in verses 18 through 21. Uh, I am so thankful and proud of the men of Wildwood Church who absolutely, cr- yeah, go ahead and give a hand clap. You don't know what you're clapping for yet, but go on and give them a hand clap for absolutely crushing. And by the way, my time, can you adjust my time to 48? Absolutely crushing the ladies in just taking that spiritual call to retreat, you know. Uh, I don't know how many people actually showed up, but like one more signed up than went for the women. So we're just going to call that victory. Of course, it is not uh, a competition, but the men won. If it was a competition, it's not. Um, However, we are crushing it. So uh, men, I am proud of you. We went to battle this weekend. We iron sharpened iron and it was just a wonderful thing. Ladies, you're welcome. You will be the direct benefactors of, of our time together. Amen, Amen right? Okay, good, good. Now, all right, uh, Romans chapter five, verses 18 through 21. Remember, this is a continuation of what we began last week. Um, the, the, in verse 12, Paul begins a sentence that he completes in verse 18. All right, so it's, it's all in context. This is, this is a restatement. He took a detour last week in verse 13. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see at the end of verse 12, you'll see a dash. That's because what follows 13 through 17 is really kind of a detour. And then he comes back in verse 18. So here we are going to pick it up in verse 18, which is completing the thought from verse 12. Paul says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy and love. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that one man's act of righteousness that leads to justification. I pray, Lord, that you would find us to be eager uh, to hear your word and eager to apply it to our lives, eager to walk out on mission to proclaim this gospel to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, For all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So we return to that statement that began in verse 12. Verse 12 reads, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So he rephrases what he said in verse 12 here in verse 18, but I think you can get the the idea that these are just a restatement of the same thing. He restates it, and I want you to recognize that for Paul, condemnation is synonymous with sin and death. All right, so sin and death. We're not just talking about, eh, you know, um, not making the best life choices, and we're all going to die physically, and ultimately we're all going to, you know, all roads lead to heaven. No, he's talking about condemnation, right? So where, where there's sin and there's death, there's condemnation. 
as he restates the, 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 the basis of sin and death and condemnation, the, the result is sin, death, condemnation. Right? So he restates verse 12 and verse 18. One trespass, one sin led to condemnation, which is synonymous with sin and death. And just as Adam's one trespass brought sin and death that led to condemnation, so, in the same way, now Paul's going to introduce Jesus, who's our second Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So what is that one act of righteousness? So one trespass leads to death, leads to sin, leads to condemnation. We know that's Adam. So one act of righteousness leads to justification, being made right with God and life. So what is that one act of righteousness? F.F. Bruce in his commentary says, it is the crowning act of Christ's lifelong obedience when he yielded up his life. It is the crowning act. It is all 33 or so years of Jesus' life living perfectly submitted, perfectly obedient, uh, perfectly obedient and climaxed on the cross where he was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement for sin. So what is the one act that causes us to be made right with God? It is his perfect obedience leading up to the cross and his death on the cross. Obviously, if, if Jesus had not been perfectly obedient at any point in his life, then the death on the cross would have been for nothing. So it's not just the death on the cross, but the death on the cross summarizes or climaxes all of his life of obedience. Now look, this is our last Sunday in this section of Romans. We began Romans 3.21 a couple of weeks ago, a couple months ago. I don't know exactly when, but it's been like eight or 10 or 12 weeks. And, and we're coming to the end of this section. And that's a little bit scary for me. Because I want to make sure that Wildwood Church is ready to move into sanctification, which is building up a house of holiness, of building up holy lives. But I want to make sure that we're building on the foundation of justification and not the foundation shifting sands of, of legalism, right? So Paul is going to bring this section, justification by faith alone, concludes in, this verse, in these verses. It concludes today. Now, I'll be, I, I, I am certain that just like I'm talking about sanctification now, I'm going to talk about justification all the way through because we don't do anything on the basis of our own good works, right? It's all founded on the foundation of justification by faith alone. But I want to make sure, because there are many Christians that get this backwards. We build up the house from our identity. We build up holy lives from who we are, made right with God by Jesus Christ. But many Christians get that backwards. Even if they would say it the other way, the way they live functionally is they imagine 
that their identity will change. They will be found acceptable to God and welcomed into his house if they will just be good enough. And what the Bible tells us is that it's exactly the opposite. That God brings you into, your, into the house and then makes you good enough. He makes you acceptable. He gives you a new life, a new identity in Christ. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he builds you up your life in righteousness. Important to understand that? It irks me that we have these banners this way. I'm doing this. I can't live another day like this. Okay, but look, justification is going here. Now we're about to get here next week. But this is what I'm saying. Many Christians live the way we had these banners set up. It's like, okay, yeah, I sin. I, I get that. I know that I'm far from God. I know that, that I'm not right with God. So, let me, so let, me, let me be good. Let me change my life so that then I'll be justified by God. No, no. Paul is so careful in Romans 1 through 5 to establish we are hopelessly lost Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, we are hopelessly lost. No person ever is justified by works of the law. It's never happened, and it's never going to, and you're not the exception. Praise the Lord, amen? Amen. But then watch, something else stepped into place to make us justified before God, and that is the one act of righteousness by Jesus Christ. And then bring it next week, because we're going to get here, right? We're going to get here where we talk about holy living and being made righteous in, 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 in act, in deed, based on our identity as righteous in identity. But still, it makes me nervous, right? Because uh, even in first service, I said, what is, it, what is that term for being made right with, with God? And there was crickets. It's like, how long have we been in justification? All right, so, so being made right with God is, is, is called? Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Now look, here's what Paul is telling us when he, when he brings this theme of justification to a close into its climax. Everyone who believes the gospel is no longer condemned on the basis of their many, many sins, but instead are legally declared by him not guilty. We stand now and forevermore in the righteousness of Christ. The, the one act, the one act of righteousness of one man is counted righteous for the many in spite of the many sins of the many. So people, uh, Paul says that Jesus' act of righteousness leads to life for all men. But my question as I'm reading that is, you know, we, we need to be critical thinkers here. We need, to, we need to ask, what does Paul mean? Does that mean every single person? He says life for all men, every single person. No, this is not teaching universal salvation. That's not what Paul is saying. To take one or two verses out of this section and use them to contradict the entire section 
is intellectually dishonest and it's foolish. Paul has argued extensively that sin brings wrath and we've all sinned. He's already told us that, all sinned. He says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's already told us, that's the whole point of Romans 1 through 5. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to condemnation. And our only escape is by faith in Jesus. He, he has labored that point. Our only escape is faith in Jesus. Look, the gospel is not the good news. It's not good at all if we don't understand the wrath and the condemnation are there. Right? Then, then we don't have to worry about it. We, we don't sense the urgency. We don't sense the need. It's like these exit signs. These exit signs don't make great decorations. They're only useful if something happens in the building. I don't want to say it out loud. You know, it's maybe illegal to say that in a building. I don't, but, but if, if something were terrible to go wrong in the building, that would be life. Jesus is life. But you have to recognize that you're, the building of your life is burning down. And then you, then you look for the exit. Then you look for Jesus. In verse 19, Paul uses the phrase, the many, the many. And I'm going to argue that he's, he's referring only to those who have been united to Jesus by faith. When he says the many, I'm going to argue that he is referring only to those who are united to Jesus by faith and not to all without exception. Now this can be a little bit confusing, but remember last week how I said that this passage, many commentaries say, is among the most important in the New Testament and also the most confusing? It's because Paul says the many to mean all without exception in one case, and the many to refer only to those that are in Christ. So let's look at what he says in verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So in Adam's sin, the disobedience to God's command and what was, what, all of the law given to Adam could be written on one post-it note. The whole law. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for if you do, you will surely die. Right? His disobedience to that one command, the many are made sinners. And who is that? All, without exception. Okay, that, 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 that's, that's what Paul's telling. He's already told us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, all sinned in, what, what was that, Romans uh, 5, 13. I don't have it here. What is it? All sinned. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, well, in verse, four, in verse 12, it says all sinned. Because all sinned, verse 12, you see it? Now he's saying that, that many were made sinners. So who is the many in this situation? All, without exception. 
Okay, so the many, as it relates to Adam and disobedience, applies to all. They were made sinners. Why? We covered this last week. We covered the headship of Adam and the headship of Jesus. And we covered that term. Does anyone remember that term? The federal head? Yes. And, and his sin was what? Imputed to us. We were made sinners because of imputation. In other words, we received Adam's sin nature. All are born sinners because in Adam all sinned. So by one man's obedience, now he's going to contrast it. So by the one man's obedience, and that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now just a curse, if we just lifted this out, if we just lifted this verse out, verse 19, we must conclude universal salvation. If that's the only verse that we had, the many refers to all in Adam, the many must refer to all in Christ. Well, praise the Lord, Romans 5.19 is not the only verse we have, and it's in context. So Paul contrasts Christ's obedience and Adam's disobedience. Kent Hughes makes a great connection here. He says, Adam, in disobedience, grasped for equality with God. His desire was to become like God, judging between right and wrong. But Christ, in obedience, Paul says in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Adam, our head, desired to be like God. And he grasped for that. Jesus, our righteous head, was God, is God, and yet emptied himself of the privileges and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Now, you might wonder if the many in relation to Adam refers to every human being without exception. Why does the many in relation to Christ not refer to every single person without exception? Let's begin with the many that belong to Adam. Why does the many in relation to Adam refer to all mankind without exception? Well, Ben, you nailed it with federal headship. Whom does Adam represent? Whom does Adam represent? All who have been born of Adam. And who is born of Adam? All man without exception. Now, who does Christ represent? Those who are born of Christ. Now, who are born of Christ? Who is born of Christ? Well, let's look at what, what Jesus said in John chapter 3. He's speaking to Nicodemus, an educated, religious, devout man. He says, teacher, what do I need? To, what can you tell me to add to my life so that I can get to the kingdom? And Jesus says, there's nothing good in you. You have to be completely started over. 
We can't build on anything that you've built. No, we, we have to reset. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Those who are born of Adam belong to Adam. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We were dead in our sin and our fallen nature, being the offspring of Adam. We are of the flesh, but we were made alive together with Christ, receiving his nature and his righteousness by faith. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. He's describing the Ephesians' conversion, their second birth, their rebirth. Any of you heard of the term born-again Christian? This is what we're talking about. This is what we mean to be a born-again Christian. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, every time I read this, I, I just have to draw out that this is the God we serve. And God has not changed. Many people that, that think about religion or think about God, they conceive of God as vengeful and wrathful. And that's there. That's there and that's holy and it's justified. And yet God has graciously provided a way of escape, just like these exit signs. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? There's another point here that I want to make, and it goes back to this, the order of these banners. You know, he says, he says that uh, while we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. Many people imagine that, you know, I want to get close to God, but in order to do that, I've got to clean my life up. I've got to dust myself off. I've got to kick some of those habits. I've got to turn my life around and then I'll be acceptable to God. Then I'll be worthy of his mercy and worthy of his love. But what does the Bible tell us over and over again? That while we were dead in our sin and trespasses, God loved us. And God did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And he made us alive together with Christ. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Doesn't it just feel right to have these banners in order? It has bugged me for months. I don't know what I'm gonna do when we get out of sanctification and have to put you know, sovereignty over here. In sanctification, I don't know. We'll trust the sovereignty of the Lord with that. Maybe we're just gonna leave sanctification right there for the rest of the series, I don't know. There's a right order and it matters because when you get them out of order, you get dead religion, right? Can you tell that I'm concerned? I love you, church. I want to make sure that you get this right. Folks, this, this, this is the invitation of the gospel. Every day, every, every, every time we preach the gospel, we ought to invite people. This is the invitation. Believe the gospel and be made new. Believe the gospel and be born again. Believe the gospel and be, be made alive together 
with Christ. And I don't know where you are today in here. Maybe, maybe you're, you're the one I'm talking to with sanctification over there and justification over here. Maybe, and you need to repent of that. Or maybe you're searching, you're seeking, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, what is this religion thing? What is this faith or uh, Christianity thing? You've come to the right place. You hear the gospel, you need to respond to it. You need to believe it. Give your life to Jesus and let him give you his righteousness. You don't clean yourself up, Jesus cleans you up. Believe the gospel. Let's move on now to verse 20. For the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law increases the trespass, how? By revealing the extent to which fallen man is corrupt and far from God. The law comes in to show us just how far we are from God. Well, why do we need the law? I know I'm not a good person. Well, even though you know you're not a good person, you still think you're kind of a good person. You still think you're better than you really are. It's like this. How many of you think that you can shoot a gun pretty well? Any marksmen in here? Good. Okay, you, you, you put a few thousand rounds down range, you get pretty good, you sight your weapon in and you control your breathing and your tr tr uh, trigger squeeze and you take up a good sight picture and boom, you put, them, you put it right on target and you think you're a pretty good shot until a professionally trained sniper gets on the lane next to you, right? How many of you think that you can run pretty fast? All right, pretty fast? You know, you, maybe you are pretty fast, Hayden. You're on the track, you're out there blowing it up, burning up. And then Michael Johnson shows up and puts on his running shoes. Okay. How many of you, and you've already, by now you already know where I'm going with this, but how many of you think you're pretty good singers? Avery? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I love your confidence. I think you're a good singer too until Whitney Houston takes the stage, right? Okay. You think, you think you're good. You think you're, you think you, you got it down. You think you're, you're, you're excelling. And then the perfect shows up and reveals to you how far you really are. I feel guilty. I feel like I just insulted my daughter. <laughs> Come here. Come here. Oh, I love you. But watch this, okay? So you, you, think, you think that you are, you think that you're, you're strong enough, you're good enough, you're doing right, and then the perfect comes in. And it's like going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mike Tyson in the boxing ring. You know, you've been practicing, got the shadow box, you got your footwork down, you feel strong, you feel able, and then Mike Tyson comes in and punches you in the, in the mouth. And you realize you have a long way to go. The law is a punch in the mouth. If you read the law of God with any seriousness at all, then it's a punch in the mouth. You think you're good, you think you're doing right, you think you're honoring the Lord, you think that your life is, is perfect and, and great, and then you read the law, 
and you're like, wretched man that I am. And that's the point. The law came in to increase the trespass by revealing to us our true nature. It also gives us opportunities to rebel. Adam had one opportunity to rebel and he took it. We have thousands and we take them. God says, don't do this. I want to do that. God says, don't do that or do this. I don't want to do that. Don't do it. Now I'm confused. <laughs> God lays down a prohibition and we say, no, we want freedom. God gives us a command. We say, no, we're rebellious in our hearts. It's in our nature and the law reveals to us our rebellious, sinful hearts. Matthew Henry says that the law reveals the abounding sinfulness of our nature. The abounding sinfulness of our nature. He says it's like a magnifying glass that reveals the spots. Did the magnifying glass, uh, did the magnifying glass put the spots there? Just, just shows you, just shows you what is there. It, it just highlights it, allows you to see it for what it is. We'll bring it closer to home. Does the sunlight shining in your windows place the dust upon your cabinets? No. When your house is dark, spick and span. But let that light in. And now all of a sudden, that's all you see. That's what the law does. It reveals to us how far we really are from God. But it's not like God is unkind to give us the law. He's not trying to make us feel bad. He's trying to help us understand our true nature and our true condition and what waits for us so that we would cry out for his grace that abounds. That's so what Paul says here, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin abounds, watch this, grace superabounds. That's the literal translation. Where, where, I'm sorry, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. R.C. Sproul says it's not comparative. I taught algebra in the first service. Many of us think it's like this. You know, I sin X. God gives grace X plus one or X plus 0.5 or maybe X minus one. We think that God isn't even keeping up with our sin, that his grace is just barely keeping up or maybe we've already out his grace. And Paul is like, no, where your sin abounds and it does abound, God's grace super abounds. R.C. Sproul says it is not comparative, it is superlative, where you sin some, God gives grace the most. Praise the Lord. Now look, next week we're going to be here and Paul knows what's going through our minds. Okay, so God's grace abounds when I sin. So I'm just going to go on sinning. By no means. Thank you, Eric. You've read ahead. By no means shall we continue to sin because grace abounds. Why? 
Why would we not think that? Because we have been made alive together with Christ and we have a new nature. I think about the Niagara Falls when I read this. Uh, Kent Hughes says that the, the, the picture here is an unending, overflowing grace. Unending, overflowing grace. I think about the Niagara Falls. Any of you been to Niagara Falls? Well, if you want to go, first service has your be, so just get with them and, and uh, maybe, they'll, maybe they'll have a timeshare or something. Almost everybody in first service has been to Niagara Falls. I think about Niagara Falls and, and the sheer magnitude of the, of the water that is going, going over the falls and the flow that it produces. And you know, those boats with those uh, very powerful diesel engines, they can only get so far. They can only push against the flow so much because they're overwhelmed by the flow of water. And I think that is what Paul is trying to show us here, that God's grace superabounds in your life, Christian. That is freedom. If you don't conceive in this moment that I can get away with anything, then you don't really understand the gospel. But if you think, oh, I can get away with anything, so let me go do anything, then you've probably not been born again. Where sin abounds, grace super abounds. Verse 21. It super abounds so that, watch, so that. Here's why. Here is why grace super abounds. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how did sin reign in death? In what ways? It reigned in death completely. There's not a single uh, human being that, that can, can avoid death, can escape death, it's complete. Everything we put our hands to dies at some point. Everything we build will be destroyed. Death reigns completely. It touches everything. Death reigned effectively. When you were born, you were born dead. And you stay dead until you're made alive in Christ. It reigned unstoppably. Try as you might, you will not escape your death. You can, you can belabor it, you can make some smart choices, you can try to be healthy. But one thing is, two things are certain. Death and taxes. You won't avoid it. It's coming for you. Not to be morbid, but it's coming for you. It's unstoppable. It's powerful. And watch. As sin reigned in death, so grace reigns through righteousness. Effectively, completely, unstoppably. And whose righteousness is it? Grace reigns through righteousness, 
not our righteousness. It is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Christ's righteousness leads to eternal life. Eternal life is the hope of the Christian. It's what we, it's what we count on. It's what we depend upon. It's, it's, it's what we're living for. That's that hope that Paul says will not put us to shame. It's not a wishful thinking. It, it, is, a, it is a sure anticipation. Is that your anticipation? That though you die, yet will you live? And you will live with Jesus and you will live with the saints and you will live with the Father and you'll live with the Holy Spirit forevermore in a real place called heaven. Is that your sure hope? Amen. Amen. Daniel Doriani offers us a, a, a great thought here on this reign of superabounding grace. He says, grace reigns when God instills a hunger and thirst for Jesus' righteousness imputed and bestowed by faith. So the first, the first way that grace reigns is that you, dead in sin, all of a sudden are made alive in righteousness. Grace reigns over that. I love that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Then without warning, desire, or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. I'm walking along in my dead, wicked, nasty self, rebelling against the Lord, and all of a sudden my heart comes alive. And now without warning, without desire, without, without what, what is it? Deserving. All of a sudden, I want Jesus. Grace reigns. And then, when I'm made alive in Christ and given his righteousness, something else happens. And the Holy Spirit begins to cause me to want to live righteous. Sanctification. He says here, Doriani says, it rains when he also prompts a hunger for personal righteousness. You see why it's important to get these things right? Like the Holy Spirit gives us new life and then gives us a desire to live right. You know, no wonder religious people are so bitter and cold. They're, forced, they're trying to force themselves to live right without the power of the Holy Spirit, without a new nature. No, brother and sister, first you get the identity, first you get the new nature, and then you get the desire for righteousness, for right living. It's the second way that grace reigns. And the third way is when forgiven people, heirs of life, forgive other people. When forgiven people forgive other people, grace reigns. Last week I spoke about how in Christ we are made new creations. And for the first time in our life, we are given the ability not to sin. Does anyone remember the Latin, the ability not to sin? 
It's not non posse peccari, that is the inability to sin, and that's what we wait for in heaven. The posse non peccari, the ability not to sin. So in Christ, you were close, Ben. You put it out there, buddy. In Christ, we have the ability not to sin. And one of the means of grace that the Lord gives us to deal with our sin and to be set free from sin in our lives practically is this body of believers. We are called to walk with one another. Iron sharpens iron, right? Go and confront someone in in their sin. Truth and love. That's what we covered last week. That was the principle last week, that God has given us one another. Today, there's another principle, according to Doriani, that causes grace to reign, which is to say that when people sin against you, that you forgive them. So we deal with, uh, with sin in the church, in our, in our lives. We, we lovingly confront. And when they repent, we... When they repent, we... When they repent, we... Do I have to say it 70 times seven? Okay. I want you to imagine being the recipient of God's superabounding grace. All of your debt is wiped clean. God has been abundantly, superabundantly gracious to you and said, I forgive you. And you go, Thank you, Lord but I'm not gonna forgive my brother or sister. I'm not going to deal with other people the way you have dealt with me. I'm, I'm going to withhold grace. I'm gonna be recipient of grace. Thank you, super abundant grace. Unending, overflowing grace. I'm not gonna let it flow to other people. Imagine that scenario. Now listen, before we move beyond this, I recognize that this is messy. I get it. Someone asked me last week, but but Brian, listen, I was abused. I I, want to forgive, but how do I do this? There's a difference between making yourself vulnerable and building a trusting relationship again and restoring relationship and forgiving. What Jesus is going to talk about here in this next passage is a heart that says, I won't Forgive. Peter comes up to Jesus and goes, Jesus, how often will my brother sin against me? Okay, let's bring that up, man. Matthew 18. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And, and then I think his, his, chest puff, his chest puffs out and he's going to virtue signal. Like seven times? I'm willing to forgive seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven times. He might as well have said a billion. Unending, overflowing grace is given to you in Christ. 
Then he goes on to speak a parable about an unforgiving servant. A servant who was forgiven a debt that he could never repay, even in a hundred lifetimes, he could never repay this debt. He's forgiven, it's wiped clean, he's free. And then he goes out to the street and he sees a, he sees a fellow servant who owes him a day's wages or something like that, some minuscule amount. And he has the man thrown into prison. The man asks him, listen, be, bear, bear patiently. He does the same thing that, that the unforgiving servant did to the master. He begs for mercy. He says, I'm sorry, I will repay you. And this man has his fellow servant thrown into prison. Jesus' point is that it is inconceivable. Listen to me. It is inconceivable to Jesus that a person who has received the superabounding grace of God would refuse to extend grace to fellow brothers and sisters. Now, once again, there's a difference between entering back into a relationship of trust and restoration and being vulnerable and choosing to forgive from your heart. Relationships are two ways. It's, it's important for us to draw the distinction that in the, in the parable, the fellow servant was repentant. And the implication is genuinely repentant. But there's this heart that obviously Jesus knew existed among religious people that would say, I refuse to offer you grace. Jesus says, inconceivable, or that's the heart. It's inconceivable that Jesus, in Jesus' mind, that you would taste the superabounding grace of God and yet withhold grace from others. There is nothing that someone has done to you that is more grievous than what you have done to the Lord. In fact, I mean, because God is infinite and any trespass against God is an infinite trespass, there is nothing that anyone has ever done to you that is worse than what you have done to the Lord today. Have you kept the, whole, the, the, the Lord's day holy today? Have you been perfect today? Controlled your tongue, controlled your thoughts? You came in here with a, per, a heart perfectly submitted in worship, right? There is nothing that anyone has ever done to you that is more grievous than what you have done to the Lord. And what is the Lord's response? Super abounding grace. Grace reigns when people who recognize how far they have been from the Lord, how far they still are from perfection. Grace reigns when those people extend grace to other people. The gospel of grace is given to us not so that we would just have warm fuzzies, so that we would walk out of here like we're hugging a teddy bear. No, the gospel of grace is given to us so that we will love our neighbor as ourselves. 
that we would be purveyors of grace, that that grace that, that abounds to us would flow through us to other people. That we would be distinct people in the Quad Cities. Forgiven people who forgive people. Forgiven people who forgive people. That we would obey Jesus in dealing with sin in order to maintain a right relationship so that our body would be built up in love and effective and productive and working properly together. That we would be so bent on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of eternal life through Jesus, the message of this superabounding grace that nothing could distract us. And yet we are so prone to be distracted from eternal things by temporal things. We are prone to pursue, to pursue comfort and avoid conflict. We are prone to isolate instead of invest. We are prone to be so fixated on the temporal at the expense of the eternal. Earlier in my sermon, I read Philippians 2, 6 through 8, which said Jesus was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And because of his obedience, this is what Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Lord, our Savior, the head of this church is high and lifted up. And there's going to be a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But the sad reality is that most people in the world will bow before Jesus and confess that he is Lord as those who stand condemned. Doomed to an eternity of destruction Brother and sister, it is our blessed opportunity. Most important responsibility and most sacred mission to proclaim to the nations the gospel of superabounding grace. Unfortunately, there are many Christians, I think, and perhaps churches that will never add to the kingdom of God. They will be busy. They will feel good about their busyness, but it will all be burned up, which was a theme of our men's retreat. It will all be burned up. Nothing will remain because they were distracted by the temporal at the, at the expense of the eternal. They forgot abounding sin and superabounding grace. They forgot that the church is the one who is responsible to ensure that no one on earth can say, I never heard the gospel. That's what we do. That's who we are. We make missionaries. Taking the gospel across the street and around the world and everything else is superfluous. What do you need to do today to course correct?
Do you need to remember this super abounding grace? You come in here guilty, ashamed, feeling far from God. Remember super abounding grace is for you, Christian. God loves you. God wants you close. Maybe you've come in here far from God. You don't know God. You need to repent and believe the gospel today. You need to give your life to Jesus today. Maybe you've put a dam on that flowing river of super abundant grace. And you're like, it ain't going beyond me, God. I ain't extending it to anybody. Repent. Maybe you're so distracted by everything in the world that you've forgotten who you are and what you're here for. Repent. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Remember who you are, what he's done for you, and what he's called you to. Thank you, Jesus, for grace. Thank you for loving us, even while we were yet in our sin. Yet in our sin. Jesus, thank you for this super abundant grace. Help us, Lord, to to let that grace flow through us into the Quad Cities, into the United States, and all over the world. Lord, as far as it depends on us, let there not be a single person that can say, but I never heard the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.